Romans chapter 1, and we're going to uh, be focusing today on verses 16 and 17. So I want to read for us, but I want to begin in verse 13. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, we have worshipped you in song. We have come to you in prayer. We have fellowship together in your name, and now as we come to your word, we ask that you would minister to us. We ask that you would work in our hearts such that we would not be distracted by things that have gone before or might come after, other things on our minds or fears that we have or other things that would distract us. Father, may we be engaged with your word. We pray that your spirit would minister to us in this time, that Jesus, our Savior, would be lifted up, that you would be glorified in this time, Father. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Today is Reformation Sunday, and as was mentioned earlier, it was 1517, October 31st of that year when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the church there in Wittenberg in Germany and thus kind of began uh, the Reformation in a manner of speaking. And this Sunday, uh, we're not going to be focusing entirely on the Reformation, but we're going to be focusing on the heart of the Reformation, and that is the gospel. On Reformation Sunday, we are uh, reminded and we celebrate what's probably the greatest revival in all of Christian history. During the medieval period, a great darkness had fallen upon the Christian church. There was confusion about what was the gospel, about what was saving. And this darkness was so deep that it obscured really the central core of the Christian message, which is the gospel itself. And throughout history, and uh, we, we can look back and we can see from the perspective where we are, we can see that there have been errors all throughout church history of one sort or another. And we will be able to see that there are errors in our uh, period of church history as well. And some of those are more important, some are less important, and, and, um, and we, need to, we need to fight those battles, we need to deal with those things, we need to understand what Scripture says, but no battle is more important. 
And no error is more dangerous than errors concerning the gospel. And really what had happened during that medieval period was that the gospel had been, um, at the very best, obfuscated. And usually it was just decimated. And so when Luther came along and the other uh, reformers and they rediscovered the gospel, that was indeed good news. And so they, uh, they would celebrate that with the Latin phrase, post tenebrous lux, after the darkness, light. And so that light came from the gospel. That light was uh, the topic that we want to talk about today, the gospel. What is the gospel? Before we even get into our outline, we need to identify for ourselves what gospel means. And of course, probably we know, if you've been in Sunday school class at all, that uh, gospel means good news. It's something that has been done for us, something that's been accomplished for us. It's been promised to us, right? The idea of good news, the one who proclaims good news would be the, the kind of uh, a runner coming from a battle to declare the victory has been won. That's the good news. And that's the good news for us is that the victory has been won. There has been a battle fought. It has been won by our God. That righteous God who has been so terribly offended by our sin has been appeased by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That's the, that's the essence. That's the core of the gospel message. It's a battle that has been won on our behalf. God's righteous standard has been met by Jesus' perfect obedience to the law. And that's good news. So the, the expectation isn't on someone else to meet that standard. The expectation isn't upon you to pay that penalty for your own sin, that Jesus has done that for you. He has won that victory. And these things are they're, they're not ours. Or they are ours as free gifts, not, not ours by something that we've done something that we need to accomplish. They are ours as free gifts by faith alone. And this is what was recovered in the gospel uh, in the Reformation period. They began to understand this again after it had been covered over and, and, uh, and in the darkness for about a thousand years. The gospel is that the eternal life and reconciliation with God that Jesus has earned is offered to us as a gift. It's a gift. It's what's been accomplished. That's the gospel message. And so today, as we're going to look at this passage, we're going to uh, read Paul's words here about him talking about the gospel, that he uh, was desirous to proclaim this gospel message there in Rome, even to the church in Rome. He wanted to go there and preach. And so he wrote this letter in anticipation of that. He wrote this letter as uh, uh, an expectation that he would get that opportunity, but until then, they would have this to read. They would be able to understand clearly what is the gospel and what is the gospel that he proclaims. So as we look at this text today, we're going to get a peek into the mind of someone who had been impacted himself by the gospel. This wasn't just a topic that he was writing about. It wasn't just uh, the next in a line of books that, uh, that he was writing. This was, this was a man who had been changed by the gospel. That he himself, who had encountered this Jesus on the road to Damascus, who had come to know this Savior, had come to the place where he understood himself that he who had been working so hard, who had been running that treadmill so hard in, in seeking to please God, finally came to understand 
the righteousness that is found only in Christ. That he, Jesus, has met that righteous standard. That he, Jesus, has given himself in the place of sinners like us to pay the penalty for the sin that we have committed. That Paul himself, the one who was so radically altered and captivated by this gospel message, we get a peek into how he thinks about the gospel. What it's like for him. He says that he's not ashamed of the gospel. Not ashamed of the gospel. In fact, he doesn't just say, I'm not ashamed. That's in verse 16. But what do we read in verse 15? He says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. It's not just that he's not ashamed, like he's, he's kind of finally overcome that, that little weakness and, and uh, he doesn't have to really uh, uh, worry about being ashamed anymore. No, it's exactly the opposite. Far from being ashamed of the gospel, I can't wait to come and preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So we want to look at why it was that he was so eager to preach the gospel, why it was that he was so far from being ashamed of the gospel, and, and, and more importantly, why we ought to be as eager, why there should be no shame for us in the gospel itself. And so we see uh, at the beginning there, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, and then he says, for, that gives the first reason, it is the power of God for salvation. Why? Should we be ashamed? The gospel is the power of God to save. To save. We've been reading about the power of God when we've been going through Genesis. So we, you open up Genesis chapter 1 and you read about the fact that God is, is such a God that he's able to speak. And worlds come into existence. You know, he didn't roll up his sleeves and start building stuff. He, he didn't, you know, have to go buy materials or somehow acquire materials to build all things. He didn't have to, to break a sweat doing it. He spoke. And all things came into existence. That's the power of God. That's, that's how much above us he is. We, we can't even comprehend that kind of power that he would simply speak and it would exist. You know, we can build things. And some of us can build uh, very complex um, mechanisms and, 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 and you have to think so hard to make, you make it work and they, people have the skill and ability to be able to do that. And other people can build you know, houses and buildings and big things like that. We can build all that stuff, but it takes work. It takes effort, right? It takes planning and blood, sweat, and tears and it takes us figuring out how to do that and putting in the effort, etc. And what, is, what does God do to create all things? He simply spoke. And there they were. That's the power of our God. It's power we can't comprehend. And here, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Well, first of all, because it's the power of God for salvation. That very power, but put to a different use. That very power that, that created worlds, that created the, the, the intricate mechanisms of our bodies, and the, and the giant mechanisms of the universe. The one who did all that, he took that power and he uh, brings it to bear upon salvation. And the, the point where that is located is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God 
for salvation. And we may think about, you know, the glories and the wonders of creation. And I think as, as, we, uh, as, as we look, you know, in, in, in finer detail and at, you know, the smaller and smaller parts of us and smaller and smaller parts of atoms and subatomic stuff and things like that, we're more amazed by God's power. And as we look farther away and we, and we try and imagine how big these, these different stars are and, 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 and galaxies and all this kind of stuff, right, we get, a, we get an idea of God's power, but I want to say that God's power on display in those things is nothing compared to his power on display in salvation. That he would take the heart of someone who is a sinner, who is a, re- a rebel against him, who has such debt towards God, who, who even in his own heart has enmity towards God, someone who's on the outs with God, that God would take that person and by means of the gospel bring them into his own family to be his own child, to be far from a rebel but be his, his adopted son, to be brought right in, that, that, that God has the power to take that which is dead and give life to it, give new life to it, I want to say that that power that he shows there is even more glorious than the power of creating worlds. His power to redeem, and he does so by means of the gospel. Christians often say, and we are right to say it often, since we need to be reminded that there is no one who is beyond God's power to save. We say that to each other because we ourselves probably need to be reminded of that. Probably there's someone in our life or there are people that we see, maybe on television, maybe just in our circles, and we think there's no way. (laughs) There's no way that that person is going to be redeemed. That person surely is beyond God's grasp. But I want to say there is no one so sinful that God can't save him. There is no one so deluded in his own thinking that God can't save him. Sometimes people, uh, you know, get so wise and get so smart and, and get so, as a result, tangled up in their own education and their own thinking that they're actually just, uh, just a, a bundle of contradiction within their own brains. And you think, that person can't think logically from point A to point B anymore. That person is not beyond salvation. There is no one so hard-hearted and stubborn that God can't make his heart supple and tender to salvation. That person does not exist when I was working with the youth, I would occasionally uh, watch these videos, you can find them on YouTube, and of people doing evangelism. And you can find videos of people doing evangelism very badly. <laughs> those, are, those are entertaining and hard to watch. But you can also find videos of, uh, of people doing a great job of, of evangelism. And, and I remember one video in particular where it's, uh, the video's like an hour long altogether. It's, it's a, a bunch of uh, opportunities of evangelism put all together. But there was this guy that you see in the beginning, and he's all, he's all tattooed up, and not just like tattoos, but like vile stuff. Just, you know, like he's, he's particularly, he made himself odious by the tattoos he's put on himself. He didn't think he was decorating. He's trying to offend by the way he, you know, decorates himself in his own body. And you look at this guy, and you think, and, and his attitude matched his tattoos. He was offensive, and he was vile in his language, and lots of, lots of bleeping and lots of uh, personal uh, attack on the person sharing the gospel, etc. And as you watch 
the person share the gospel. You watch this Christian, this evangelist, sharing the gospel with this guy. And at the beginning of the video, you would think, okay, that guy is going to storm away swearing. He's going to cause problems. He might even hit the evangelist. You just don't know. But as you watch the video go on and as, as the gospel is being shared, you can, be, you can see the guy begin to think. And you can see the one who is so boisterous and so vile in his language that, that he's now asking questions. And he thinks before he gives answers. And by the end of the video, you can see the man is touched. That God has been working in his heart through this opportunity. That that, that hard-hearted person, that one who put on such a brave show of being vile, who, who, who publicized it, and God is working in his heart. There is no one who is beyond the power of God to save. And so, we should be eager to proclaim a message with such power, to work salvation in the hearts of people and give salvation where there was once only lostness. We should be eager like Paul when he says, I've got this gospel, and far from being ashamed of it, I, I am eager to come and proclaim it to you. So he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. And then verse 17 he says another four, another reason of why he's not ashamed of the gospel. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And so why should we be ashamed? It's the righteousness of God on display, right there for all to see. That God vindicates himself. Now why is that going to be important? The righteousness, that's maybe not a big deal in our day and age, but... In, in the epistle to the Romans, Paul uh, went to great lengths in, in this book and in other books that he wrote to spell out the righteous requirement of God, that God himself is righteous. His righteousness and the righteousness he requires is rooted in his own character. He himself is the standard of righteousness. He himself. And so the more we learn of him, the more we see that he is righteous, the more we come to understand what true righteousness is. And then secondly, that righteousness of God that's based upon his own character is revealed in the law of God, particularly the moral law as summed up in the Ten Commandments, that we see God's character on display in that Ten Commandments. That it's not just true of God out there, but it's actually given to us as a standard for us. That's the righteous standard that he's given to us. That's what we uh, need to live by. That's what we need to obey if we want to live and be in God's presence. We must live according to that standard of God's law. He says, this is what I'm like. If you want to live with me, this is how you must behave. And of course, there's where the rub comes. Because the more we look at the moral law, the more we understand God's character, the more we realize that we don't live according to that standard. That it, that's not good news for us when we learn more about God's righteousness and see how it applies to us. It becomes bad news for us because we do not measure up. God says, if you want to live and be in my presence, this is how you must behave, and we don't behave that way. So the consequence for us is damning, is actual damnation. So the righteousness of God, rather than being good news, has become a deadly, deadly barrier to us, keeping us from eternal life, keeping us from having any kind of fellowship with God, our maker. 
So the righteousness of God becomes a hard thing for us, stands against us. And what is astounding, what is astonishing is that God, who is righteous, takes it upon himself to reconcile unrighteous sinners to his righteous person. And he does so without lowering the bar. That's what's astounding. That righteous God could look at unrighteous sinners and find a way to bring them into his presence without having lowered the bar. Well, the medieval Roman Catholic Church had come up with a way to understand how that would work. As they understood that, that yeah, God saves sinners, and how does that mechanism work? God is righteous, we're not. Uh, what, what must happen in order for that to, to come to pass? Here's the solution that had, that had arisen within medieval Roman Catholicism. It still exists in Roman Catholicism. There is, as they understand it, an infusion, a spark, a seed of righteousness planted within you. That there is a, there's a spark of righteousness by God's grace. There is a spark of righteousness put within you, and your job is to fan it into flame. And if you fan it into flame adequately so that it turns into a fire, you can actually become righteous by the things that you do, by your life, by uh, these practices of, of, uh, uh, that the church tells you to do, that you can actually become righteous. And so when you've become righteous, God will give you the stamp of approval and say, yes, that's it. The spark that I put there by grace has been fanned into flame, they would say. And now you have become righteous. And so God can declare you to be just. He can justify you because of this infused righteousness. The problem was it was darkness. The problem was if you look at your own life and you see your own life and you examine your life in light of Scripture, you see that far from giving life, that actually causes doubt and despair. Because if you were to examine your own heart, hold Scripture up and say, this is God's law, how does my life compare? you'd realize that God's law is always above you, that you have not met that standard. It would lead you to a point of despair. And of course, that's exactly what happened with Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a great Catholic. He was too good a Catholic. He took this very seriously. As he read, read God's law and he understood God's righteousness and God's righteous standard and then he examined his own life and he would go spend hours in confession every day because he realized his own sin. He was too good a Catholic. He took this to its logical conclusion and it drove him to despair so that he could be asked one time about loving God and in this period of his life and he would say, love God? Sometimes I hate him. I can't meet his standard. Thus far the thinking of the medieval Roman Catholic Church and even continues today, but what the reformers recovered out of all of that darkness, this idea of infused righteousness and that we could fan that into flame and thus become righteous and, and be acceptable in God's sight because of having developed this uh, uh, into a raging fire that was now righteousness. And in, in that kind of darkness, because Luther realized what is true, that you can't do that, I can't do that, he observed it in himself, the reformers rediscovered something that's been there in Scripture all along but had kind of been hidden. And that is the fact that, that 
the grace of God does not infuse a, a drop of righteousness or a spark of righteousness within us that we must then fan into flame. Instead, the logic of Scripture, the logic of the gospel, is that Jesus himself was perfectly obedient to the standard of God's righteousness, always having obeyed the law, that he himself was righteous. There was one who had met the standard, and that was Jesus. And this one who had met the standard and thus had the right to live in God's presence, thus had the, the right to be in fellowship with God, that one had also died. But not for himself, but in the place of sinners, those who have not met the standard, giving himself to bear in his own body the penalty for God's wrath for my sin, for the sin of others. And so Jesus meets the standard of righteousness in his own life. And he meets the penalty that sinners deserve. And the logic of Scripture, the logic of the gospel, the logic that the, the reformers thankfully uncovered is that by faith in Jesus, by faith in Jesus, the credit for that obedience is imputed to us. So that righteousness is, is not infused in us to be fanned into flame. Righteousness is imputed to us wholesale. So that the righteousness of Christ is now credited to my account. So when you look on the ledger of heaven, for the believer you see righteous obedience. Sin having been taken care of by the crucifixion, the sacrifice of Christ, Righteousness in our account. And thus righteousness is not infused, not planted to be, to be grown and developed within us so that if it, if it fans into a big enough flame, we can be declared righteous, justified at the end of a life. Instead, by faith in Christ, at the very beginning of the Christian life, the entirety of Jesus' obedience, his righteousness is credited to me. It's imputed to me so that it's in my account and I am declared to be righteous right here. I am justified at the very beginning of the Christian life. And thus I can live the Christian life from that place. And so Paul, in thinking about the gospel, why is he so eager to proclaim? Why? Why? Why is he not ashamed at all? He's entirely eager to proclaim the gospel. Well, first of all, it's the power of God for salvation. And second of all, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Righteousness that becomes beneficial to us instead of a judgment against us. In that very gospel, righteousness is revealed. And so it's the righteousness of God on display in other words, the righteousness of God is now ours through faith in Christ. So that Paul could say in chapter 3 and verse 26, this was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might remain just, meaning he didn't lower his standard, he didn't lower the bar for us, he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Not the justifier of the one who has adequately fanned the, the, the spark into flame. The justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus.
That's the gospel that has that power. That's the gospel that reveals God's righteousness in such a way. That's the gospel that would drive Paul's life, that would drive him to write the book of Romans and and everything else that he wrote in defense of, in explanation of the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel. Because it's the power of God and it's the righteousness of God. And so we should be eager to share the message that so clearly vindicates God's own righteousness and even wraps us up in it, includes us in it. And so I, I don't want to be ashamed. I want to be, I want to be eager and I want us to be eager because we understand the reality of God's righteousness, that the, the righteousness that used to be a bar to us, used to be a judgment upon us, now in the gospel is credited to us. And we are actually examples of the righteousness of God at work redeeming sinners. Those who have faith in Jesus. So, let's be Let's be eager to proclaim that gospel. And he says, thirdly, and you thought I skipped it and I did so on purpose, why should we be ashamed? It's for anyone who believes. It's for anyone who believes. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's for anyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It's for anyone who will believe. Now, in, in, in a very real sense, a very, very true sense, Christianity is an exclusive faith. It is exclusive of other faiths. John 14, 6 is really a Bible verse. I am the way, Jesus says, and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There is one way, and that is Jesus. There are not multiple ways. They don't, not all roads uh, lead to heaven. It's very exclusive in that regard. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And John will say in 1 John 5, 11 and 12, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Could we make it any plainer? It's extremely exclusive. Eternal life is found only in Jesus. Only in Jesus, not by some other way, not by some other Savior, not by some other method or some other person. Only in Jesus. And so in that sense, it's extremely exclusive. Faith in Christ is that determining factor. The only way to God is through faith in His Son, Jesus. But in another sense, Christianity is very inclusive. Anyone who places their trust in Jesus alone for eternal life is included. Cultural, ethnic, political, religious backgrounds don't matter a lick. None of those things determines whether a person can become a Christian and receive the gift of eternal life. They might shape them. They might cause certain difficulties. They might make the conversation a little more difficult for the evangelist. 
None of those things determines whether that person can become a Christian. If he will put his faith, his trust in Jesus Christ and his completed work alone for eternal life, he will have it. It is utterly inclusive of anyone who has faith. And so sometimes in our day and age, the idea of anything exclusive is anathema. And for us to say that salvation is in Christ alone is offensive to our culture. It's offensive in our day. Well, we need to take that offense. That's okay. This is the gospel that we have been given. And this gospel that we have been given is available to that very person who is offended by the fact that we are making such exclusive claims. Thus, it is inclusive of them. They can come in. They can be saved by faith in Christ. And so why would we be ashamed when, when, uh, when, when the gospel message is called exclusive? As if that's a bad thing, when we can offer it to that very person so that that very person trying to accuse us of this, trying to shame us in, in regard to this, can come right on in. They're not excluded. We ought to be eager to tell everyone of a message that is so clearly meant for everyone. Far from being ashamed, we ought to be encouraged to bring this gospel to the world around us. So I want to close with a few points of application here. First of all, share without being ashamed. Paul was eager. Eager. He was so desirous to come to see them. He had been asking God, and so far he hadn't been able to. But he was planning, and he was hoping, and he had dreams of how he was going to get there, and then they were going to be together in fellowship, and he was going to proclaim the gospel there, and they were going to send him on to Spain. And he was far from being ashamed, and we should share without being ashamed as well. The more we learn and the more we think about the gospel, the better we understand it, the more desirous we are to bring it to the world around us. We understand that they need it. We understand the truth of what it means. And we understand the significance if they won't receive it. And so we're motivated to bring the gospel. So share without being ashamed, or in other words, share with eagerness. Secondly, share with confidence, since the gospel is the power of God for salvation. I remember, uh, and I've told the story a number of times about how I first heard the gospel that I, that I recall. I had been to a VBS when I was a, a little kid. I don't remember much about that at all except that it took place in August in Arkansas. And so I probably was sweaty. That's about all I remember about VBS, the one time I ever went. But the first time I ever remember hearing the gospel, uh, I like to tease that, you know, he, the person who shared the gospel was a peer of mine and, and didn't do the greatest job in the world. He wasn't, uh, he didn't make a logical argument. He didn't make a, a motivating presentation per se. It wasn't, uh, it didn't cover all the, uh, all the points that, you know, a, a, a persuasive speech ought to have in it. Um, it, it wasn't alliterated. <laughs> like he, he, he just shared the gospel. Blah, here it is. And God used that blah to save me. Uh, this man is a, it, 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 Paul is an encouraging 
um, gifted speaker now, and he can, he, can, he can clarify the gospel and he can, he can uh, uh, point people that direction very easily. But not then. What he shared with me was bare bones and poorly arranged. But it wasn't the, the power of Paul to, uh, to, to get me to join his club. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. He didn't even have to convince me. And I, hadn't, I utterly hadn't believed it before, but the gospel is useful by God to reach right past all the defenses, right past all of the, 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 the tattoos trying to make ourselves offensive to people around us or the, uh, the, 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 the intentional ways we're ugly to people, the hard-heartedness, the, the, the philosophical language to explain my rebellion. The proclamation of the gospel is useful to the Holy Spirit in reaching right past all of that stuff. Those things aren't even a hindrance to him. And he grabs a heart. It's the power of God for salvation. And so you and I can share with confidence. We may not be as smart as the person we're sharing with. We may not be uh, as on our toes as we would like. We may, may, I had some memory verses I wanted to share here at this point, and I've forgotten them, and oh no, oh no. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, so share it with confidence. And thirdly, as you share, let your tone reflect God's compassion found in the gospel. I think sometimes Christians are so busy, uh, desirous to, that this person understand the importance of what we're saying, that we're talking about real things that are vastly important. And you need to understand the weight of this. And so as a result, we kind of loom a little bit. And, and we kind of change our voice and we, and we begin to preach. Well, nothing wrong with preaching, hopefully. But we, we can begin to rail at the person as we're sharing with them the gospel of salvation in Christ. We're trying to help them understand the free gift of eternal life that's found in Jesus. And we can be angry. Or we can come across as angry, and we all need to be careful. I'm as guilty as anyone. When I share, to let my tone reflect God's compassion that's found in the gospel. Because even getting this person to understand the severity, the reality, the, the gravity of what we're talking about, that's only a means to an end. I want them to understand that so that they will believe. The, the, the goal, the desire is that this person would receive eternal life in Christ. That they would not only feel the weight of their sin, the burden that's on their back, that, that they would feel that and that they would find the release from that that there is in Christ. You feel that weight, you feel that pain, you feel that, that guilt. Yeah, that, that, let's move past that because here's what Christ did to pay the penalty for that very guilt, for that very sin that you are just now becoming aware of. Jesus, the righteous one, died to pay the penalty for that. And you don't have to carry that burden anymore. I'm glad you feel the weight of that. Now let's get it gone by trusting in Christ. So we need to be sure that our tone matches our message. And finally, we have, uh, you'll, you saw it in the bulletin and it's been announced a couple times. We are having a, a special Sunday on uh, November 13th 
um, that we are going to uh, have a service that's going to be very clear in explaining and presenting the gospel. And that'll serve a couple of purposes. The first purpose is it will help us as we want to uh, be trained in our own thinking about how to share the gospel. What is the gospel? How do I present it? Because the, the, the man who shared with me really could have used a couple of classes in this, could have used a couple of messages on this topic, right? And it would have helped uh, in his presentation, though thank God it, it, uh, God, God was able to redeem me <laughs> nonetheless. But we could benefit from that, right? And so as we go through the gospel, and as we talk about uh, a clear presentation of the gospel, one desire is that it be helpful for you, Christian, as you seek to share the gospel with your neighbor, with your child, with your, your family member, that it would be beneficial to you, that it would be helpful to you in your own witnessing. Because the more we think about the gospel, the more we understand the gospel and why it's so significant, the more desirous we will be to share it. The more eager we will be like Paul. And so far from being ashamed of the gospel, we won't be able to wait to talk to people about it. So that's, that's one motivator for that. Another motivator for that is for the person who, that you invite. And so here's the point of application. Invite people that you've been sharing with, you've been wanting to share with for this message on November 13th. Because even as we're learning and we're talking about the gospel and how to share it, they will hear the gospel and they will be called to believe it. They will be called to trust in Christ even in that time and they will perhaps for the first time, hopefully, understand why and why that matters. And they'll be brought to that place. And so uh, we've, we've provided some resources to help you with this. Um, again, that's two weeks from now on November 13th. And um, so we, first of all, it provided back in the, in the uh, foyer back there, we have these uh, invitations, just a simple flyer. There's nothing fancy at all. It's just an invitation. It gives the location of the church and the date uh, and the time and, and asks the question, how can I be made right with God? Right? So it's, it's just to, me, to be an invitation for you to give. Maybe, maybe there's someone at work that you've been trying to share with, and, and maybe this person's the smartest person in the room. You know that guy, right? He's always the smartest person in the room, and, and you're not going to convince him of anything because he's smarter than you, right? Well, okay. I mean, bring him. Bring him. Not that anyone here necessarily is going to be smarter than that guy, but the gospel is the power of God for salvation, even to the smartest guy in the room. So invite him here. And so you have invitations. You can grab those on the Welcome Center in the back. Also, we have a couple of um, tracks here that uh, you can take and use. This one's called The Story. And these are just simple. You can hand them out with the invitation. And um, these, are, these are like paper missionaries, people call them. So like you, you hand them out and they, they go and do their thing and you, you're not even involved in that necessarily. But it'll help explain the gospel to the person you're talking to. Here's one. There are a couple more back there. And this one's my favorite one. This one says, Are You a Good Person? And it's a picture of a, of a, uh, a little boy on it. And I don't, maybe he's not a little boy. I don't know. But there's a, it, it looks like it's for kids. But I love this thing because it walks you through um, examining your own life in light of the Scripture. And you, the, the person comes to understand, well, maybe I, I thought I was good, but I've broken God's law across the board. So before God, I'm not good, though I thought I was really good. And so now what am I going to do? Uh, before a righteous God. And so, invite people to uh, November 13th. Um, they can hear the gospel message. Um, they can be called to believe it in this kind of context. Maybe this is a person you're, you've been nervous to share with or you've been trying to share with or they've got a lot of objections or, or, or something. 
this is an opportunity. And then we're going to have a meal afterwards. And they get to come to the meal, and we'll let them eat. <laughs> we're, going to, we're going to all be together, so we're going to spend some time together. Hopefully, we can all fit in the fellowship hall. I would really like it if we would uh, do our best not to be able to fit in the fellowship hall altogether. So invite some people uh, to that. And so this is, this is our effort to, um, to try and be able to say along with Paul when he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm eager. He didn't shrink back from proclaiming the gospel. He eagerly anticipated the opportunity to go to Rome and to preach the good news there. He knew the power of God was at work in the preaching of the gospel. He understood very clearly that the gospel was the profound revelation of God's righteousness in saving the unrighteous. And his whole life was guided by the understanding that the message of the gospel was meant for all people. And so Paul invested his life taking it hither and yon. We need to understand these same truths. Let's have that kind of confidence in the truth and the power and the righteousness of God that's revealed in the simple message of the saving gospel that we preach. And let's become bold in proclaiming it in our homes and in our church and in our neighborhoods and our community. Because God saves sinners. And may he save many in our city and in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I think back on the day when you made me your own. And I'm astounded because there, there was no power in the presentation of my friend. There was no no inkling in my heart at the beginning of that day or even as my friend spoke that, that I should believe this. Certainly no inkling that I did believe it. Certainly no inkling that I intended to submit to God. But my friend was not ashamed of the gospel. He was eager to proclaim it to me. The power of God for salvation. The righteousness of God revealed to all who believe. Father, I pray first of all that we would all believe that. That we would all believe this gospel. And I pray second of all that you would work in our hearts that we would take that saving message of the gospel to the world around us starting next door, starting in our own home perhaps with our own families. And I pray that you would do your work as we, your your uh, imperfect and weak and small servants who are uh, not skilled in ourselves, not powerful in ourselves, as we proclaim this simple message, I pray that you would redeem sinners with the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So, Father, we pray that you would be at work. Father, as we go out about our week, may we think on the gospel May we become more convinced of its significance in our own lives and necessity for those around us. And may we become eager to proclaim this gospel to them. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. There will be a family up here who would love to pray with you. Otherwise, God bless you all, and you're dismissed.